0: Hello, thank you for tuning in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett.
1: And here God is saying, I'm going to discipline them, I'm going to pluck them out, I'm going to remove them from the land, and, but when I'm done, I will still have compassion on them. In
0: spite of the disobedience and selfish ambition of the people of Israel, God had a plan. The land and its people were His, and while their removal from the land may have appeared for a time to be an abandonment by God, In fact, God's discipline of his people was redemptive. There are lessons here to be drawn by parents too. Let's join Dr. Corbett now and meet the raiser and faller of nations. Father,
1: give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that will warm to your word. Help us, Lord, to be fueled with motivation and desire to read your word and to take it in like a thirsty sponge, to be people that crave the washing of the water of your word, people who hold your word and save your word, examine your word, study your word, search your word and allow your word to make us into the people you want us to be. Father, set us free with your word, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. We're reading from Jeremiah chapter 12 and we're looking at the last paragraph from verses 14 down to verse 17. And this, this is what I'm calling the riser and the faller of nations. I'm not exactly sure if the, the, the riser and the faller of nations is exactly the right use of the, the language. But see if you can follow where I'm coming from with this. We, we have in verse 14 where we, where we pick this up. It says this, thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors. That's an interesting Sense of the term. I want you to notice that my evil neighbours. This is God talking about the nations that surround or surrounded Israel, and notice how God refers to them my. So, in a moment, I'm going to ask the question just who owns this land? Whose land is it? And obviously, that's a very contentious issue today where people's lives are literally being lost and given because of this very question so let's just hold that thought thus says the lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that i have given my people israel to inherit behold i will pluck them up from their land i will pluck them up from the house of judah from among them so We just want to see a couple of points here. Firstly, God is laying claim to the land. They're my neighbours. This is my land. I've given the land to Israel as a heritage or an inheritance. Now, there's something, something I guess we probably need to understand about an inheritance. When does it kick in? When someone dies. So I want you to see here that while Israel is pictured in the Bible as the inheritance of Israel... The inheritance is not given to the heirs until someone dies. Now, you know, Jesus told that story. What is it in uh, Is it Luke 15, where Jesus told the story of the prodigal son? And he tells this story of the prodigal son who came to the father and said, give me my share of the inheritance. And it's meant to shock because really, the, what was the son saying to his father? I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. And you can see how Jesus is telling this story to a Jewish audience. And they hear the, 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 the temerity of this kid. Give me my inheritance. I wish you were dead. And, and, and the audience that Jesus is telling this to is going, oh, this will be good. Watch what the, listen to what the father does to the little blighter. And Jesus shocks his audience. Because the father says, okay, that's a shot. That's like, where did that come from? Because that's not the way they would have treated a kid who came to them and said the same thing. But you see, an inheritance is, is only given in an ordinary sense when someone dies. So if this is God saying, I'm the testator. I'm the one who makes the last will and testament. The land represents an inheritance and you're the heirs. Can you see that when Jesus died on the cross, that was God dying in order to hand over an inheritance? And can you begin to see that the New Testament does not refer to the land as being the inheritance at all? Can you see that the land was what we call typical of what salvation was meant to be? I mean, if you read through the Genesis, you come into Exodus, they come through... You know, and they're wandering the desert. Then we read in Joshua how they came out of the wilderness and came into the promised land. Doesn't it sound like we're living in a wilderness now, and we die and we're going to go into heaven? It kind of, isn't that, it, it, you ever got that picture? It's kind of, it is kind of that picture, isn't it? Where the land represents salvation. The land represents deliverance. The land represents the promises of God. It was called the promised land. Can you see that? So when we're talking about the land, it actually represents something to the New Testament. And so God is calling it my land. He's calling it the inheritance. He's calling it the heritage for those that he was to bequeath it to. It's worth just noting that. Now, God says in this passage that he was going to pluck out of the land certain ones. Now, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit in the story of Jeremiah, because what happens is King Nebuchadnezzar, who's already taken a batch of people out of Judah and taken them off to Babylon, he's taken the cream of the crop. And in amongst that cream was this young guy, Daniel. You've heard me refer to him before. He is probably one of my greatest heroes in the Bible. And Daniel was among the first people. Can you see the language here? God says he plucked, not scooped, plucked. Plucked. You, get the, you get the picture of this one and God's just plucked. And that's like salvation too. If you're here today, it could be that God has plucked you out of your situation and placed you into the middle of his will. It could be that you're not even a Christian yet, but God has already—you already you already feel the, the plucking fingers of God plucking you out of your situation. It could be just like Israel, the situation they were in. They were surrounded by armies. They were surrounded by an opposing king. This was a terrible time. There was famine in the land. People were doing horrible things. The land was going to pot. And here, God is plucking people out. That's a picture of salvation. That's what God does today. God plucks people out of their situation. When God was plucking people out of the situation, as we jump ahead in the story... There's, there was three waves of exile. The first wave included Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and, and, a, and a whole bunch of these elite guys. Guys who actually, it looks on the surface, they actually loved God. And it looks like God took them out of Judah at this time because he loved them and he cared for them. And he's plucking them out and he's placing them in Babylon. Now, that's a whole other story, because when they got there, they didn't want to be there. They didn't understand it, but they trusted God. Powerful story on its own. Let's come back to to this situation. Israel had said, we will never be invaded. Our temple will never be. Be destroyed why we won't be invaded because God is with us our temple won't be destroyed because this is where God lives we are the people of God nothing bad will ever happen to us that's the arrogance of what they were saying and yet what did happen was they were taken out of their country and this is what Jeremiah the prophet is calling as God's discipline on the people God's discipline. And I want to make this point as we, as we look at this, that God's discipline is not God's abandonment. When things start to go wrong in your life, it could be that God is wanting you to refocus on something that you've lost focus on. When things go wrong in your life, it could be that they are the times God wants you to grow, not to go back. If you think about the times in your life when you've grown, were they the good times or the hard times? Chances are they were the hard times. And as this was becoming an increasingly hard time for Israel, God was increasingly doing something profound in their lives. God's discipline should not be interpreted as his abandonment. As we read on in this, I want, I want to ask this question. Who does God think he is? Who does God think he is to say, I'm kicking you out of this land? Who does he think he is? You see, throughout the book of Jeremiah, God has spoken to the people as if, as if he was their king. As if he was their husband and they were his bride. And in fact, he actually uses that language. He uses the language that I'm your husband, you're my bride. In fact, we got married earlier today and you're still in your wedding dress, it says back in chapter 9. And you're already committing adultery on me. So God uses this language. Who does God think he is? Well, he presents himself as a husband. He presents himself as the king. In In this passage, God is presenting himself clearly as I'm the king. I'm the landlord. And Jesus told a story like this. Jesus told the story of a king who received a land in a foreign country. And as he went to get it, he, he went there and he put certain ones in charge, three people in charge. And he gave them different different rulership. One he gave, was it five cities? One he gave three cities. One he gave one city to. And then he went away. And in one sense, God the king has given the land to Israel and he's gone away. Now he's coming back to settle accounts. And you know, in that story... We read in the Gospels that Jesus said that there were people there that did not want the king to rule over them. And when the king turned up, this is red letter Bible, by the way. This is Jesus talking. It's very strong. And if you've got a kind of a wispy, wimpy picture of Jesus, this will blow it out of the water. Because Jesus says, what will he do when he returns? He will destroy those who opposed him that's strong language there really is eternity on the line there really is a hell to be shunned and a heaven to be gained here and so in this instance god thinks he's the king he actually thinks he has a right both to the land and to the devotion of the people he actually thought these people really should be devoted to him we we're looking here That these people, it says, uh, concerning all my evil neighbors. These are the gentile neighbors, the gentile neighbors of Israel. They wanted the land. As God was exiling people out of the land, people were coming in from the surrounding nations and raiding Israel. And God's going, "Uh, uh, 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 hang on a minute. This is this is mine. You're my neighbors. This is not right. So, this kind of answers the question. Even today, I'm going to posit, who owns the land of Israel? I'm going to tell you, I think the unequivocal message of Scripture, that is, the one message of Scripture, is God owns it. In fact, I think you find in Psalm 24, God actually thinks He owns the whole earth. Who does He think He is? He thinks He's God he thinks he's the creator he thinks he's the king of kings that's who he thinks he is whose land is it the gentiles wanted it but it was god's and he wasn't giving it to them we read in verse 15 and after i have plucked them up i will again have compassion on them and i will bring them again to his inher- to his heritage each to his land jeremiah 12:15 so God is, God is saying, yes, I'm taking them out of the land. And yes, I said I would do that if they, can, if they refused to continue to walk with me. If they refused to continue to walk with me, I said I will remove them from the land. That's what I'm doing. That's called discipline. And parents, and I'm going to be drawing some pretty clear analogies here for parents in a moment. But I want you to see here is who does God think he is? It, it almost sounds like God thinks he's the parent of Israel. It almost sounds like God thinks he's the father of Israel. Of Israel. And here God is saying, I'm going to discipline them. I'm going to pluck them out. I'm going to remove them from the land. But when I'm done, I will still have compassion on them. Now, I want to draw a point in a moment about if this is God the Father, and particularly as I was thinking about this, I want to be a good father. And as God, God's made a threat, God doesn't say, okay, I'll do it again. No, He says, if you don't do this, I will do this please don't do this, don't do this, and then God does what he said he would do. That's kind of good parenting, by the way. That's good parenting. But notice something here, how God disciplines. God's discipline is always, the word is, redemptive. It's meant to it's meant to involve restoration. So when God was doing this to Israel, it wasn't just to punish them. It was in order for them to come to their senses, come back to him and be redeemed, be restored, be rescued. And as parents, when I am kind of jumping ahead a bit here, going to a bit of an application. But when we discipline our children, it's not because we hate them. It's not because we're in anger. And And I want to make this point that when God was doing this, I mean, think about this. God took these people out of Israel and here he's saying, verse 15, but I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to bring them back. Why was God going to bring the the, the Jews back to the land? Because it was from the Jews that the Messiah was to be born. And the Messiah was God's plan. The Bible says before he even created the worlds. God has a big plan here. And in the midst of all this going on with Nebuchadnezzar taking people out of the land and these people vanishing and thinking, well, that's it. They'll never come back here. Israel's finished as a nation. We're done for. God has got a plan. God has got a plan they couldn't see. So this wasn't just to be nasty. This was God being redemptive. God has a redemptive plan. He has a bigger plan. And I mentioned before about Adoniram Judson. He could not have known how God used him. He could not have known that he was a part of a much bigger plan that he wouldn't see fulfilled in his own lifetime. Couldn't possibly have known. And yet without what, without his work, without what he did, the work that God was to do over the next 150 years in northern Burma could not have happened. God's got a bigger plan. And the bigger plan at play here was that he had to bring them back into the land so that the Messiah would be born and the salvation of the world would be secured. There is a bigger plan at play here. So this plan involved Israel. We read in verse 16, Jeremiah 12, 16. And it shall come to pass, if they... Who's the they? The they are these bad neighbours. The they, uh, I, I say bad neighbours, in verse 14, God describes them as evil neighbours. That's the they here. So these evil neighbours. And hes this is the they that we read. And it shall come to pass, if they diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. In other words, they shall become a part of my people. These evil neighbours can become my people if they will learn my ways. Wow. See, this is God saying to evil neighbours, I don't care how evil you are. I don't care how broken your life has become. I don't care how messed up you've made your life. I don't care who you've done it with or how many times you've done it. I can heal you. I can restore you. I can take you from being evil to being mine. Isn't that good news? Man, that is good news. And the people of Israel wouldn't have had a clue what that was about. But today we can see this is God saying because of what Jesus has done, you don't have to live a broken life. Because of what Jesus has done, your life doesn't have to be defined by your past. I've said it before, I saw someone on Facebook just having a hard time saying, I wish I could go back in time and rewrite my history. And I'm here today to tell you, because of Jesus, you can. Your history is being written today. Today is tomorrow's history. You can write a new history for your life if you bring Jesus into your life. You can. And God is saying to these evil neighbours... If you will learn my ways, the ways of my people and swear by my name. In other words, you're not giving reference to the Baals, the false gods. You're giving reference to me. God, what do you want me to do with my life? God, I want to do what you want for my life. Oh, God, I want to please you. I want to live for you. I want to give you my life. I want to serve you with all my heart. That's swearing by the name of the Lord. That's living by the name of the Lord. And that's what God said. Now, notice what they had to do. It says they had to learn diligently. I like that word diligently. 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 To, to be diligent, it says all through the Proverbs, it uses this word diligent. Apply yourself to wisdom. Be diligent. Diligent. What is diligent? Diligent is when you do more than you have to do. Even though no one's asked you to. To be diligent is to go for longer than you have to go. To be diligent is to try harder than you have to try, than you're expected to try. When you're diligent, you're doing more. Didn't Jesus say something about this? Someone asks you to carry their pack one mile, carry it two. Someone asks you for your coat, give them your coat. And give them your shirt as well. Be diligent. Christianity, Christians, we are marked by being diligent, aren't we? When the teacher asks you for 500 words by next week, give them 501 by that afternoon. Come on. Come on. Gee, that got people excited. Now, you see, these evil neighbors, oh, the boss, the boss says, oh, can you just stay back a couple of minutes and help? Uh, is it double time? Would you pay would you pay me? Well yeah, hang on, I'm just selling me smoke, hang on. All right, go. Oh, sorry, time's up, that'll be ten bucks, thanks. It's like what? That's not diligent. The Christian gets in a little bit before. The Christian stays back a little bit after. The Christian's giving more than they're expected. It's good preaching, Andrew. Just really good. Really good. Keep it up. See, so see here, evil neighbours, you become my people. This is this tells us that relationship with God is not based on race. It's based on Covenantal, that is an agreement, covenantal grace. And this is covenantal grace is when God says, I will be your God. And we say, I'll be your people. A covenant of grace. A covenant of grace is an agreement we enter into with God, even though we don't deserve it. We've done nothing to earn it. There's not a thing in us that should cause God to do it. That's a covenant of grace. And relationship with God is based on covenant of grace we see here this word diligently i just just highlight this again god expected these people who who came in from outside to then diligently learn the ways of god the ways of god must be diligently learned and i would encourage you if you've recently come to Christ, read the book of romans and if you can apply yourself to the things in romans 12 verses 9 to 21 you'll see there in verses 9 to 21, that there are 27 things that we should diligently do. In fact, it actually says to be diligent about it. Let's go. Verse 17, the last verse here. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. Now, isn't history replete with with stories of this? Isn't history going to tell us that that when kings honoured God, God established their kingdom. And, and we could go through the book of Daniel, where Daniel during this time actually speaks to the king in question, which was King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar is described as, as the head of gold on a statue where there was then a chest of silver, then a band of bronze, and then iron, and then clay. With iron and clay mixed in. And each of these, the prophet Daniel tells the king in Daniel chapter 2, um, around about verse uh, 36 to 40. These are the different kingdoms of the world. King Nebuchadnezzar, curiously, was the king of Babylon. And Babylon, in world empire terms, is one of the smallest empires in all of world empire history. Yet he's called the king of gold. The, the one at the, the head, the preeminent one. Why? Because King Nebuchadnezzar was the only emperor... The only emperor that converted to become a follower and worshipper of the God of Israel. Persia was, was the silver. Then we have Greece. Then we have Rome. Then we have the iron and the clay, which was the merger of clay, soil, the land. That was Israel and iron. Rome, the Roman and Jewish coalition to put Christ to death. And each of these kingdoms, God raised them up. God put them down. They served God's purpose. In the movie, and and Joe, you might have seen this movie based on the tattoo you have on your forearm, uh, Dead Poets Society. And and the Latin motto from that movie is "Carpe Diem." And one of the opening scenes in that movie, they talk about uh, um, the the teacher talks about a, a, a king, and he cites a poem. Uh, about that king. Anyone know the name of the king? Yeah, not surprised. It's not a, and that was the point of the movie as well because the, the the king his name was Ozymandias. Ozymandias, and there was an inscription and uh, on this statue and it, it said this, "My name is Ozymandias. I am king of kings. Look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair." This guy was a world emperor. And it's interesting, none of you have ever heard of him. Ozymandias. <laughs> and someone's written a poem. Uh, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand. Half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing besides remains round the decay of that colossal wreck. Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. This was a king, this was a world emperor. You may know of him as, Ram- you may have heard of him as Ramses II. And yet his kingdom was taken from him. In fact, the prophet Isaiah prophesied this in Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1. God raises up, God puts down. What do we see from this? Exactly that. It says that in the Psalms. God raises up, God puts down. Remember Jesus in John chapter 19 and verse 11 said this. He said this to Pilate, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greatest sin. Can you imagine that? Jesus standing before Pilate saying this, You're not in control. I am. You have no authority except what my father has given you. Well, let's draw some application from what we've seen. Here's God, the ultimate parent talking to his children the ultimate wayward child what lessons can parents of wayward children learn about how God dealt with this situation firstly you see that God was pretty angry and anger is not a sign of lack of love anger is not lack of love in fact I would think that the ones you love the most you're probably going to get angry with the most as well God was pretty angry with his children. Anger is not a lack of love. So children, when your parents get angry at you for something you've done or haven't done, it's not because they don't love you. It may be because they do. What else do we note here about how God did it? Well, notice the word compassion. It says, it was at verse 15, I will again have compassion on them. In everything God was doing, it was with a heart of love and compassion. So we see here that discipline aims discipline aims to correct god god's not seeking just to, aha now's my chance to whip your bird No, god's there to bring about change and correction and he does this because of his great compassion so and we see here that even though these people were in rebellion even though his children were in rebellion i've heard some parents say what i consider to be some some pretty unwise things at times when, when they've been frustrated with their children. I've heard parents say things like this. If you do that, you will no longer be my child. Man, 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 please don't say that. I guess that cuts the other way too for children. Children, don't talk about divorcing your parents. We don't use that language. You'll never, you're no longer my son. You're no longer my grandson. You're no longer... You're no, we don't talk like that. God didn't talk like that. That's not how he talked. And then, you know, we, we see here that, that God is is, is saying, oh, I'm going to bring them back. Uh, we read in verse 15, I, I will bring them back again, each to his heritage, each heritage. To his land it's as if god's got a plan and yes he does god has got a big big plan here it was really important that israel come back really important that the jews come back so that the messiah could be born and the plan of redemption could unfold god's got a big plan here so when what what do we see here god the ultimate parent is not going well let's just see how we go here let's just throw some genes into the gene pool and fertilize them and have some kids and just hope for the best That wasn't God's plan. God actually had a plan. And the plan was, I'm going to teach my children. I'm going to bring tutors to my children. I'm going to bring positive environment, positive influence into the life of my children. I'm going to give my children things that they have to do by way of ritual and routine. And in families, we have to do the same thing. We have to have a plan to produce good children. Good children don't just happen by luck. They happen because we've got a plan. It's a plan that produces good children. A plan, not luck. So it's a good thing to have certain routines as a family, to have a meal time together, to have a time of sharing together. What did you read in your Bible today? What are you praying about? For, for a dad to say to his children, now I'm going to be praying for you a bit later tonight before I go to sleep. What would you like me to pray about for your life? This is a plan. And the plan could be when you're sitting watching a movie and some bloke who's already married takes a liking to some girl over there and the way the movie presents it is, oh, that's a really bad situation. Anyway, this is a much better situation. And you're able to say to your children, do you see what the makers of this movie are doing to your heart as you watch this movie? Can you see how the, really the ultimate maker of this movie is called Lucifer? And he's actually trying to trick you into thinking that sin is cool and good. Can you see that? And so that's a plan, that's a plan for helping our kids to interpret the world because without that kind of parental guidance, we're just going, well, all the best, hope it works out. And then when you work at being a good parent, when you work at it, you know it wasn't luck. It's because of a plan, because of a plan. So we are all children, God is our father, and God actually has a plan for your life. God has a much bigger plan than any of you can see now. And you might think turning up to church on Sunday is neither here nor there. You might think picking up your Bible and reading it is neither here nor there. You might think praying for someone is neither here nor there. But God wants you to do this. God has got a plan for you to do this. His plan is dependent upon you doing this. Please do this. Please do the things you know you should do. You may be like Adoniram Judson. You may never see the fruit of what you do. But what you do is i absolutely categorically tell you what you are doing is a part of the plan of god we as a church are in the plan of god let's pray father help us to be the kind of people that walk after you that walk close to your heart that walk in a way that when we slip when we stumble and you have to pluck us out and give us time out that father during that time out we learn the ways of God diligently. We learn the things that we need to learn in order that we can follow you more closely. Now, Father, if there be those listening to my voice, perhaps they're watching in their lounge room, in their bedroom, live right now on our webcast. Perhaps they're listening now on the radio. Perhaps they've downloaded this off our website as an MP3. Wherever you are who are listening to me right now, those in this building, those listening via the World Wide Web, those who are listening electronically in some form or another, I want to ask you a question. Do you have peace with God? Are you relying on what you do? Or have you placed your faith in the one who has D-O-N-E, it all for you? You are just one prayer away from getting your messed up life sorted out. One prayer away. And that prayer sounds something like this. God, I come to you just as I am. Please take my life, heal my life, help me to live the way I should live. I need your help to do life. Please forgive me and I want to learn diligently your ways so that I can bring much pleasure to you. In Jesus' name.
0: Obedient children don't happen as a result of luck. They are trained and disciplined. So too, God lovingly and purposefully disciplines his children. His discipline, redemptive and not a sign of abandonment. More from Dr. Corbett next week on Jeremiah, the prophet's soiled undies. If you missed the previous broadcasts, we have a special offer for our Finding Truth Matters listeners. Series 1 of Jeremiah the Weeping Prophet is now available and includes 26 DVDs. For a gift of $75, we'll send you the entire first series of Jeremiah on DVD. To take advantage of this offer, just go to findingtruthmatters.org and click DVD Offer. You're also welcome to phone and request this special DVD offer if you're calling locally the number 633-0288-5 in business hours. that number again 633-0288-5. We look forward to joining you at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.